Welcome to Current Affairs Taiwan. Mike, what have we got up on the show today? Well, today we've got Donovan talking about quarantine. And at the end of the show, we'll return to that with its broader implications for society as a whole. We've got uh, the Taiwan People's Party attacking the head of the the, the COVID-19 response. We've got the KMT pushing for the 18-year-olds to vote and 20-year-olds to run for office in a move that makes me think I've awakened in, on an alternate timeline. And we've got Wu uh, Suhai with another, with another uh, appearance on our show today. And we've got adultery. Okay, we don't have adultery, but we're going to talk about it. And the WHO, which has just treated Taiwan like the red-headed stepchild. And finally, some news about the news outlets kicked out of the PRC. Hopefully, they'll be coming here. So stick around. It's going to be a good show. Hello out there. Welcome back to another episode of Current Affairs Taiwan. I'm Michael Turton, and that voice from the other world is Donovan Smith, here now <laughs> with an announcement. All right. So, unfortunately, our sponsor, May Jam, has uh, suspended May Jam this year and will continue with it, of course, next year. It's closed due to the coronavirus, like pretty much everything right now, um, which is a big disappointment. But, of course, safety is important. Be sure to stay uh, up to date on May Jam at MayJam.com. All right. So what do we have on the show today, Mike? What do we have on the show? We have you, sir. <laughs> you are the star today because I'm going to ask you what happened to you three weeks ago or a month ago or whenever it was. You had an encounter with Mr. Coronavirus. That's right. Patient 50. We can talk about it now. Okay. Um, so this was it's the story starts a couple of weeks ago um uh, maybe over two weeks ago yeah it's a long time ago now three almost, yeah yeah Just, go well ahead. my my quarantine ended uh a week ago okay so so i guess two and a half weeks ago basically my business partner at compass he was hospitalized and he got in touch with me and our Chinese editor saying, hey, I'm in the hospital. It didn't sound at the time. Uh, now, he, he seemed to be OK, just sick, not, you know, at death's door or anything like that. You know, he wasn't on a ventilator and, you know, he was he had you know visitors and stuff like that. And they weren't treating him like he was a COVID-19 patient. And um so, you know, they, they let him have visitors. They weren't, you know, handling with hazmat suits or anything like that. But after a few days, they said, well, let's let's give you a test. And the initial tests came out as uh, in inconclusive. And then finally, uh, a, a third test came back that he was positive. And so I got, uh, he messaged me and Yuvia, I got in touch with the staff to let them know. And I'd had a meeting with them, preparing them just in case. And so I immediately ran out and, you know, put my mask on and, you know, try to keep as far away from everybody as possible. And I went out and did a whole bunch of shopping, including lots of toilet paper. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Um, so it seems saying, to be the theme of the era. He, he was actually tested three times and the third time finally came up positive. Uh, well, the first one was inconclusive. I don't know what the second one was, but the third, I know that definitely the third one was conclusive. 
Okay. So our whole company was put into quarantine. Um, and the and this was kind of a concern because there's a lot of there's a lot of stigmatism around being quarantined and fear. Right. And I'm not really worried about it, about the stigma personally, but we were afraid the press would get a hold of this because the two companies up to this point that had got been completely shut down and quarantined made the news. And in right. fact, I talked about them on ICRT and we didn't want our staff to be stigmatized by this. Sure. So Doug and I made the decision we're, we were going to do everything we could to just keep it quiet until everyone was out of quarantine and Doug was out of the hospital. So uh, that's the case now. Doug's out of the hospital. He's fine. Uh, according to the doctors, he recovered uh, unusually quickly. Um, so that's very good news. But my and so he's writing an article for the Taipei Times. So I'll let him tell his story there. Um, I'm writing an article for Ketagalan Media, which hopefully will be out over the next couple of days. I'm nearly done with that article. So, but uh, long story short, it was a little bit weird because so I let the building administrator know in advance, so there was no fear, no panic, and the health department calls me up as expected. And they call me downstairs to the front door of uh, the apartment building. So in the I lobby. Down, You're going to have this conversation in the lobby, a potentially out, infectious right person. Right front of the lobby, in the street. <laughs> okay, in the street's so, a little better. Right. So the, the woman from the health department, she was, she was lovely. She was very polite and all that. But, and so, but there's also a cop stationed there. So now, so anyway, so essentially you get a pack of stuff. You have a, a thermometer and they give you a cell phone and the cell phone, you're supposed to either call them or line them twice a day with your temperature and let them know if you have any symptoms changes. The rules are you cannot leave uh, your home for any reason at all, I, unless I presume for health reasons and they take you to the hospital. But um, so uh, now, the, the thing is, is, you know, the, there's obviously somebody from the government there and a cop. So the building manager comes out and says, you know, what's going on? Now, the good news is I'd, I'd given him a heads up that this might happen. Um, but the lady from the health department says, you know, I, I, I'm afraid I can't, you know, I can't, I, you know, I can't tell you what's going on. This is, you know, a legal requirement. But of right. course, they show up with a cop and a government person. They're handing you stuff and signing papers and all this. <laughs> Not exactly subtle. Out in the street in front of everyone. Yeah. Hey, foreigner. Uh, how about some yeah. COVID-19 stigma? <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I know. So so I, I, I said, go ahead, tell him. Because again, I wanted to sort of be transparent with him so that, you know, so that there was no panic. And because I knew what she would say. And she told him that basically, you know, I'm not a suspected carrier at this point. This is just a precaution, you know. And so I let him copy my the paper that I I signed, which had my release date on it. So they, you know, again, I was trying to be very, very clear here. So no, there was no panic, no, you know. So I'm I'm thinking that I'm going to be spending. I go upstairs. I think I'm I think I'm going to be spending the next next eight days because it, it, there was a few days gap between when he was diagnosed and the last time I'd seen him. So I didn't have a full 14-day quarantine, just an eight-day quarantine. So I'm thinking I'm not going to see any human being for eight days. Turns out I was wrong. I had oh, plenty so. of human interaction. <laughs> 
So on day two, this is the, you know, uh, this is my first full day of quarantine. And I, I'm, you know, I'm sitting around, you know, I mean, I'm in my boxers and working and, and uh, nobody needs that detail. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. So anyway, I, you know, so my, my doorbell rings, not the downs, not the little monitor from the front desk, my actual doorbell. So I, you know, I poke my head around the door and there's cops there and the building manager. I'm like, what the heck? So anyway, I, I tell them to wait a second, pull on my pants and they say, go get your phone. So I go get the phone that they'd left with me. They took a picture of me with the phone and they took down my ID number. And of course they're standing as far away as humanly possible. It's two nervous looking young cops. Of course. And, you know, they were, they were polite and, and everything, but, you know, I was like, what the heck is going on here? So I figured, this was my guess at the time, that they had, they were coming to sort of show that the police were paying attention and, you know, just sort of underlie the message or something. I, that was my guess. Well, it turns out I was wrong. Later that day, my doorbell rings again. This time it's an older cop. And I'm now, I've now been, and I get a nasty message on my phone saying, you have broken quarantine. Go home now. And it's a really kind of a scary message. Sure. Um, but you were home when you got it. You had never I'm left. Home. Right. I'd never left. And so I'm freaking out and I call the woman from the health department who is super helpful, but she explains this is probably a signal problem. And this is when I realized that they were tracking my cell phone, my personal cell phone, not just the one that they'd left with me. So they didn't give you, they didn't give you an app or anything to put on your phone. They were just tracking it. So they went down to the the local headquarters of Zhonghua Telecom and said, we're going to track this phone. Right. Which I didn't even know was legal. Which you didn't even know either. (laughs) No. And at this point, I'd never seen any reporting saying that they were doing this. Wow. So that was creepy. And so the cop says, you know, it, you know, your, your signal showed that you'd broken quarantine. And he said, that's probably a signal problem. So this really kind of changed the tone of the quarantine. Cause originally I was perfectly happy to go along with it. It's, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it's, but this made it really feel kind of more oppressive and kind of creepy. Um, sure. But, uh, so I actually later looked at my cell phone GPS you know, on Google maps and you know, you could actually see it kind of roaming around the neighborhood. Sometimes it even had me in the police station. It was really weird. (laughs) So I read an article somewhere that said that people in crowded buildings, sometimes a signal doesn't fix right because there's a lot of phones. Right. Um, But they showed up a bunch of times, including once at just after six 30 in the morning, waking me up. So that was kind of, that kind of changed my mood. <laughs> yeah, I remember you and I communicating about that. Yeah. That was uh, pretty scary. Yeah, so anyway, so that was my experience. Yeah, that was part of the reason I, commun- I, you know, I texted you every day and asked if you were okay and chatted with you. Yeah, no, I appreciated that. Yeah, I knew you needed that uh, support. Yeah, I appreciated uh, it. Well, what else did you learn? Eight days of introspection. 
Well, uh, <laughs> I was reminded <laughs> that I really look terrible with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> One weird thing about it was after the police started showing up, it, my mood changed. And I, I felt oddly not wanting to work. I did work, but I didn't get anywhere near as much as I thought I'd get done because I felt it was a, just a weird mood. Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain. It brings out the contrarian in you, I think. The police show up at your door and you're just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just want to. The thing is, and they could be, they could show up at any time. So it's like, you know, you're in the shower. They're going to come show up when I'm in the shower. They did show up when I was asleep, you know? Wow. So, yeah. So. Hmm. Anyway, I'm writing an article on, uh, for Ketagalan Media, which people can read, um, and it goes into a little bit more detail, but those are sort of the headline uh, wow. bits to the to the piece. Well, speaking of sleeping in showers, uh, the Constitutional Court, I hear, is uh, going to make some changes to the adultery law. Yeah, well, they're they're hearing debates on it. Okay, what are the what are the potentials here? What's well, what could happen? It, I, presumably, it could be overturned. And if it's overturned, that would mean that it's no longer illegal to sleep outside your marriage. It would become a civil matter. Yeah, right now it's a criminal offense. Right. And apparently, uh, as, as, as anyone who's lived here for any length of time knows, you have to be caught in the act. There has to be like irrefutable evidence, used condoms, photographs of you having sex, whatever. And so a lot of times that it's, it's almost impossible to arrange that. So the law isn't applied. And then it mostly, because of because women depend on men financially, they, they drop a lot of the cases more so than men do against their own husbands, although they often go after the woman if, in, in that kind of situation, the other woman. Yep. Yeah. So it's been a law that uh, a lot of women's groups have objected to, but also a lot of supported because at least it gives the woman leverage to use against her husband who's cheating on her. So yeah. there's some, uh, there's a lot of conservatism here that people want to keep this law because women can benefit from it. The I mean there's there, the the evilest part. Um, just just quickly to throw in a little a few details. You can um, the the strictest penalty is up to a year in prison. Um, people often use it for and and there's there's a whole industry here and you you sometimes see these these billboards and it has a monkey usually in a suit, tiptoeing, holding a pair of shoes. I'm sure you've seen these ads around. <laughs> really? And it's, and of course, it's, it's a reference to a Taiwanese term, which is catch monkeys, which means to catch people in the act of having sex. Oh. And so there's this whole industry here of private detectives for just this purpose. And they also have uh, branches in China. Because there's a lot of Taiwanese men who are in China doing business and have mistresses there. Oh, yeah. They have second marriages and second families there. I've had yeah. several of my students over the years have come to me with this, hey, my, my, I just discovered that I've got a whole set of half-siblings in, in China because my father has a second wife there. Yeah. You know, and then every time people want to tell me how great Taiwanese businessmen are, I just think of all the money they blew on mistresses and wives you know, during the hate that Chun Swabian years, the heyday of uh, Taiwan business there. It's yeah. just, um, and meanwhile, they're neglecting their women here. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote on this uh, 
a few times on the blog, but it's always been, it's, it's a severe problem that one of the victims of men moving to China was a lot of women in working class marriages in Taiwan whose husbands yeah. just left them behind, you know, and didn't toss them any money either. So we should probably mention the most evil, well, just deeply evil part of, uh, or the reaper, uh, one of the uh, probably unintended consequences of the law, which is, and that is that if someone is raped by a married person, and okay. they report it to the police, that person who has been raped can be countersued for adultery. Dear Lord, it's like, it's like, wow, it's like Sharia law. It's, it's really creepy. Yeah, it is. Because it, Has it that actually that, happened that you know? Oh, of? yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you remember there was that writer uh, who killed herself some time ago? San Mao? In the 90s? No, no, no. Uh, oh, I know recently. the case you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she wrote a book about a girl being raped uh, and when she was 13 or something. She, that story, and now after, after she committed suicide, her family confirmed that, well, the story wasn't completely, directly exactly the same, but it, it was based on something that had happened to her when she was, I think, 16, 15 or 16. She'd been raped by a Bushiban, her Bushiban teacher. And the, and so what had happened after that, anyway, so she wrote about it and her family decided not to press charges or do anything about it precisely because they were afraid that she would be countersued. And she was, I think, 16 wow. at the time. Uh, they didn't want her to potentially risk being put for, you know, put for, put in jail for a year. Yeah. Or, be, or have to pay thousands and thousands of NT. Yeah. Wow, that's just crazy. And then there was a, another weird, another weird side effect of that particular the suicide case mm -hmm. is that after that the the government started talking about putting in all uh, like some checks on foreign teachers. Oh, of course. <laughs> to check criminal records on foreign teachers, even though the, the rapist was not a foreigner. Of course. And they weren't going to apply it to Taiwanese Bushiban teachers, just foreign ones. So it's so uh, typical. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I for one, I, I strongly support this law being thrown out. It's. Oh, yeah. It's, so do I. It's just evil. Uh, there must be other ways to make sure that the injured party in the case gets just compensation without making this kind of fallout occur. Yeah, very yeah. few, very few countries now have it uh, as a criminal thing. It's not criminal in most countries, right? Except, well, some countries that can stone you to death. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, heck, yeah. that's legal in some U.S. states now that now that you can get marijuana. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so to move on so here, I, I, I'm hoping Sean puts in uh, cuts in here, Bob Dylan. But anyway, <laughs> so the KMT. Speaking of another, speaking of our constitutional, speaking of legal changes, the KMT is now pushing. Can you believe this? The KMT is now pushing to allow 18 year olds to vote and 20 year olds yeah, to run for office. They're taking the lead. That's amazing because are there any 20 year olds in the KMT? <laughs> yeah, I know. 
<laughs> 18 year olds to vote. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the DPP has supported this for a long time. Right. The TPP has come out and said they support it. The NPP has come out and said they support it. Basically, all the parties have come out and said they support it. But it's the KMT that's taking the lead and creating the, the legislation and everything to push the ball forward. And they're hoping that now this it has a, uh, some fairly high hurdles because it's changing the Constitution. Sure. So they have to get it through a, a, a very high majority of the of the legislature, but it probably will since all the parties are supporting it. Right. And then it has to go to the public and then it has to pass in a public vote. Well, that might be interesting. Does it have to pass with uh, some just a straight majority and as a referendum? If memory serves, it's a majority, but at least a quarter of the electorate has to turn out. It's something right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this because they set up these birdcage laws to prevent constitutional change after they made that whole swath of changes under Lee Dong Hui and in the early Chen Swabian years. I think after Mm -hmm. they got rid of that National Assembly was when they tried to lock that down to make the process more difficult. Yeah. Or maybe it was after they... uh, that quote reform unquote of the legislature when they reduced the number of legislators and oh, made it first past the post. Yeah. That my memory is more that it was then, but it could have been both to be honest with you. Yeah. Cause they, right. they, they both around both times they were making a lot of changes. So speaking of the KMT, there was news about the amazing Usui this week. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, this is very interesting because, you know, Wu Zihui, he's been saying a lot of things that create a lot of controversy. Right, right. Um, and so the so basically now just just for for uh, listeners and viewers who, who are not familiar with him, just to catch you up a little bit. This is the guy that he was. There's a there's the party list, and this is during the election for the legislature. A certain number of Legislative seats are set aside for a, and a, it's, it's they're allocated as a percentage of the vote they get on the party list vote. So these are people that then the party nominates and then they can allocate into the legislature. They're not directly elected. So Wuduani, the previous KMT chair, chose as the as number four on the list, which is almost certain to get in this re, this retired general Wu Zihui who's famous for doing things like going to China, listening to a speech given by Xi Jinping uh, at a memorial activity for Sun Yat-sen and then standing to the, uh, to the PRC national anthem, giving information out or in an interview, I think it was with Hong Kong TV, uh, you know, giving the PLA ideas on how to defeat the United States in a war. He's now in the legislature and he's been asking for, admittedly unclassified, but he's been asking for things like troop movements and, in, and other information like that from the Ministry of National Defense. So there's a lot of concern in a lot of quarters, including in, in uh, including some KMT members, who think that he's a national security risk. So we talked last week about uh, about some of the things he's been saying recently. Right. So... Johnny Chang, the new KMT chair, has basically said that party list, these party list legislature, le- legislators can be kicked out of the party if they don't toe the line. Right. And then they lose their seat. Right. So he's basically issued a shot across the bow and he says he's going to speak with him and that 
basically he needs to maintain party discipline. So that there's a big question. Will basically will Wu Zihuai either shut up or just simply say the party line, or will he keep making these outrageous comments? Right. It's a good test of uh, Johnny Chang's authority within the KMT too, to see if he can get Wu Zihuai to obey him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is it yeah. right now? So the very first thing that Johnny Chang needs to do now, if he wants to reform the party, is enforce some party discipline. Right, and crack down on that generation. Will mm-hmm. that generation tolerate a crackdown? Those... That's a very interesting test. Yep. So, meanwhile, the KMT is also doing something strange with the head of the, uh, the center for uh, the coronavirus uh, response. What's going on with that? Uh, do you mean the, uh, the TPP. Chen Shizhong? Yeah, Chen Shizhong. Yeah, well, he's the the minister of uh, the minister of health, and he's also the head of the command uh, the command center for the epidemic. And Apollo Chen from the KMT and the TPP have called for him to step down. The TPP is Kowenja's party, right? The mm-hmm. Taiwanese People's Party. Yeah, and what's wrong with that? Well, he's got eighty percent support. And he's doing a great job by both domestic and international uh, standards. Mm-hmm. So it's very strange that the TPP, which is coming, which which is positioning itself as the party of good governance, is now attacking one of the best governed uh, responses in the world for COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, and it's the kind of thing that will simply um, marginalize them. Yeah. Uh, because he's popular right now and they're doing a great job. And even I know a lot of people who I know support the KMT are saying, you know, whatever you might think of Tsai and the Tsai administration on this thing, they're doing very well. Mm-hmm. So, and we've mentioned that in each of the last several shows is marveling at how well Taiwan is doing. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like a very bright move, especially when you consider all of the other people that the TPP never discusses. I can think of, uh, you know, three or four County chiefs who who are <clears throat> not so clean, po- legislators, count- city councilors. I mean, there's just like lists of people that they could be discussing, mm-hmm. and lists of um, of policies, the land development policies that uh, seem to favor big business, the Taoyuan Airport thing, which is requiring displacement of what nine thousand people or something, the extension of the runway, and of course, there's a huge controversy over that because uh, one of the the gasoline, the fuel tanks for the airplanes are like 300 meters from the runway. So if a plane screws up its approach, kaboom. Oof. Yeah. So there's been some controversy about this. And these are things that the TPP should be hitting. You know, here's an obvious weakness. Here's a thing that the public is is arguing about. Instead, they're attacking a highly popular minister who's doing a really good job by any objective standard. It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, and of course Kuenza, the party chair, is a doctor, so it makes it even more mysterious. Yeah, it makes it even stranger. He probably yeah. knows Chen Shijong personally. Probably. I mean, he's been he's famous, and he's, they've both been in the system for you know decades. Chen Shijong was the minister of health during the SARS crisis, so, so he, pr- they must know each other, right? And they, and so he's experienced. He's been through this before. This is exactly the kind of person that you want to run the show. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. They, what they want is for Su Zhentang, the premier, to take that job over and then for him 
uh, for and then Chen Shizhong just to stick to his job as Minister of Health. But I, I, I don't really understand the logic there, basic, as you were saying, I, you know, Chen Shizhong is a medical professional. Right. Whereas Su Zhenzhang, I mean, he's doing a pretty good job as premier, but he's not a medical professional. No. And and it's the same situation anyway. There's, there'll be a minister who's wearing two hats. So if they're worried about, you know, the guy with two responsibilities problem, they're not solving it by bringing in Su Zhenzhang. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And you'll notice Johnny Chang, the KMT chair, he's been essentially, he, he's been kind of read between the lines, almost complimentary of the government. Uh, for the response. He's talked a, a bit about, you know, it's it's important that the KMT support the government right now during the crisis, that kind of thing, and no criticisms. Yeah, that's actually been, that's, that's, that's points for the KMT there for not turning yeah. this into a political crisis. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, it's hard for them to say where they could have done better. <laughs> the yeah. response yeah. has been so good. Yeah. So... So uh, speaking of responses to COVID-19, how about our friends at the World Health Organization? <laughs> this week, all over the Taiwan Twitter, I got, I got up and turned on Twitter and boom, 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 boom. Everyone with, with smart remarks was retweeting and, and sending around Facebook that video of the reporter from, what was it, the Hong Kong Free Press? No, it was uh, um, RTHK. That's it, RTHK, who had asked... Uh, Bruce Alleyward, I don't know how to pronounce his name, sadly, who's what, a deputy director or something over at the WHO who had personally been to China to look at China's responses. And she'd ask him when Taiwan is going to get in the WHO. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What was the question? And then she repeats it. And he said, well, we've already talked about China. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. And then he hung up at one point. <laughs> then he hung up. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I yeah. just, it was so funny to see that on Twitter with everyone condemning it. And basically, and even people who aren't that interested in Taiwan saying, in case you didn't know, the WHO is a wholly owned subsidiary of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. That was pretty funny. Yeah. And of course, that came on the heels just a few days earlier when the head of the WHO, Tedros, and I can't pronounce his other two names. Um, right. He came out and blamed Taiwan for his woes, basically. Yeah. That was a, a that was obnoxious of him. Apparently, he mismanaged two previous epidemics when he was back uh, when he was a minister back in Ethiopia. He was in the oh, government there. Yeah, so he's not a man with a good track record. And now, now it's easy to see. Well, we we don't even need to talk about it. everyone's seen it in the news. Him sucking up to China, repeating without any criticism Chinese claims. You know, uh, saying what did Ali Ward say the other day that he'd rather be. Um, He'd rather have COVID-19 in China than anywhere else. Jeez. Oh, yeah. So you, you just, it's such a disaster for the, for uh, Taiwan. And, you know, and I'm sure you've seen Taiwan had warned days before China did, had warned that there was weeks. human human to transmission and this was going to be serious. And apparently Taiwanese intelligence had known a couple of weeks before that, that serious things were going down. Mm-hmm. And did you see the news out just today, just this morning when I opened up Twitter? Uh, lots of prominent people were tweeting. Apparently, uh, investigations have now pieced together that Chinese students and Chinese businesses were shipping masks and hazmat suits and other equipment out of the U.S. in January before mm-hmm. China had notified the WHO or anything. Mm-hmm. In other words, they stripped as much as they could out of other countries. Then they declared it was a, an epidemic and they left everyone else without 
supplies. And a couple of smart people on Twitter had noticed this happening, but hadn't put it together completely. But they were saying, hey, we have to start rationing what we send to China because eventually it's going to hit us. But nobody listened, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, Taiwan notified the WHO of human-to-human transmission on December 31st. Yep. And essentially the PRC didn't uh, confirm that until until January 24th, but the WHO didn't, didn't take Taiwan's warning, just ignored Taiwan because it came from Taiwan. Yep. So that meant that the world had essentially three weeks of lead time they could have been preparing because they were listening to the WHO, who are the supposed experts. Right. And there was that, uh, there's a, a, a big, the last I saw, it was at 580,000. I think it's probably up more by now. There's a petition out there that that is calling for Tedros to be replaced and Taiwan to be admitted to the WHO. Well, we and can't his, do that without getting into the UN first. So right, but but Tedros said that all the criticism he blamed it on Taiwanese netizens, and then he said, "What was his exact phrase?" Um, oh, Taiwan wants to join the WHO. Because of political motivations. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a weird. <laughs> what else can he say? I mean. <laughs> yeah. But you know that uh, a friend of mine was pointing out that um, a lot of the major medical centers in China, the big, modern, well-invested ones are Taiwanese investments. And they have mm-hmm. Taiwanese doctors working there. And so there's a there's already like a on the front lines of this, that how many doctors were already noticing human, human transmission, you know, in December at mm-hmm. the places where they were working there. And that's why Taiwan got such a, a, a long lead time on this. Taiwan also, I think sent people to Wuhan in December to see what was going on. Yeah. I think they sent some experts at memory. If memory as, as I recall, there was a team, but I don't think it was that early anyway. So, yeah. and meanwhile, over this, thing uh, a bunch of u.s reporters got kicked out and this week joseph u high-ranking dpp member and a member of the government invited foreign news minister. outlets huh foreign minister yeah he's the foreign minister mm-hmm. invited news outlets who'd been kicked out of the prc to set up here in taiwan yeah so unfortunately yeah. <laughs> there's the whole visa and quarantine thing <laughs> yeah so but he did say that Taiwan would welcome them with open arms and genuine smiles. I yes. That's the way he phrased it. And, but, and long visa applications. <laughs> right. <laughs> but let's see, it was the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Was it the New York Times was the other one, I think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, traditionally these companies have had bureaus either in Beijing or they would set up in Hong Kong. But now neither are particularly free for for them so they may actually relocate here to taiwan that would be awesome taiwan hasn't had any international bureaus really for a long time well speaking of the world out there this week also uh president trump of the united states signed the taipei act which calls for uh essentially it it allows it it encourages the executive branch of the U.S. government to, if it authorizes and encourages the executive branch, like Department of State, et cetera, that if a country 
essentially acts to undermine Taiwan or Taiwanese sovereignty or to belittle Taiwan or anything like that, which would include, for example, if a country diplomatically recognizes Taiwan and drops it, but it also includes other other things, that the U.S. government can take some kind of punitive actions. And there's a variety of things they can do. The act also um, encourages Taiwan to be included in in international organizations that don't require statehood. And also it encourages the U.S. government to deepen uh, ties with Taiwan, essentially economic and uh, other yeah, and other interactions. Right. It originally, in the original wording, it, it called for a free trade agreement with Taiwan, but the House Democrats nixed that. Right. And we had talked last week about how the uh, the that thing about organizations that don't require statehood was actually a Clinton-era thing that had never been policy before that. So mm-hmm. in, in a way, it's a step backwards. Yeah. Yeah. But, hey, it's something. And it... And um, speaking of the U.S., I just like to say a word out there. Can we call this virus COVID nineteen and not Wuhan or the Chinese virus? People in the U.S. are getting beaten up and attacked over this over these terms. And anything that we can do to reduce that, we should do. So I've, I've been sparring with people on on various sites and places who just don't get this. I think we have to pin this on the CCP. I think the world already knows that the Chinese Communist Party let this thing out. And we don't need to keep calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, especially since the official nomenclature is COVID-19. So, yeah. No, I yeah. mean, the, the attacks are just awful. Absolutely yeah. awful. I just hate seeing that stuff. It's, you know, and I've got, I've got two half-Asian kids. Yeah. You know, and if they're going to go back to the U.S., this can't be happening. Yeah. Yeah. So. So good point. I was, uh, well, anyway. So Taipei Times called for Tsai Ing-wen to declare a national emergency. And uh, as we saw from your quarantine thing, the police already have the powers that they need. If they can tap your phone without telling you. I mean, if they can follow your phone without telling you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't really realize how heavily surveilled Taiwan is, but it's if you look on those internet things of heavily surveilled societies, Taiwan is always in black. We're a very heavily surveilled society. And, uh, very, yeah. And, and so the government doesn't need a national emergency to, to keep track of the few people that it actually has to keep track of right now. I think, uh, in my own life, because you caused me to reflect on, we actually had a long discussion about this a couple of weeks ago about the foreign community here. And I work in a, high school right now. I retired out of the university system and I work at a high school. And uh, a lot of my uh, students have older siblings returning from universities in the US and Canada and the UK where they would have met up with the virus. And a lot of them are self-quarantined, but the ki- but the kids at my school weren't. And this is probably true of many other schools as well, where, you know, elite high schools where kids are being prepared to go to college. And one of the things I noted and you know, we, we, we argued about it, we debated it, but um, it seemed to me that the foreign population in Taiwan, especially here in Taichung, is composed largely of people who teach in schools. And uh, we are all very closely networked. We go to the same restaurants. And you had pointed out, actually, that we 
foreigners maintain, you know, wider body space, good greater distance from each other than Taiwanese do when they talk. Mm-hmm. But we come in contact with each other. And if one of us gets it or a couple of us gets it, it's going to spread very rapidly in the community. We all live in the same, in Taichung, you know, the foreigners cluster in a few places. They go to the same restaurants, they live in the same neighborhoods. They go, they go to a lot of the same events. You know, it's, it's something that our community has to be really vigilant about. Yeah. Hmm. About the emergency decree, the call that the Taipei Times issued to for Tai to use the emergency powers. Now, by the way, the there was apparently in this big bill that passed recently with the sixty billion funding. I think it was shoehorned in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the laws that had recently come out. They they actually put in that for disease control that they gave the government sort of wide ranging powers outside of normal, outside of the normal scope. But I think and I feel like the the government shouldn't use the emergency powers because all that would do is raise alarm. Right. And I think that the government's done a really good job of emphasizing that this is a serious situation, but don't panic and panic isn't going to help. So I think that the government has done a very good job of drawing that fine line between everybody should be concerned and take steps and precautions, but we're not going to impose them outside of, you know, shutting major events. And now the nightclubs in Taichung, for example, were ordered shut, whereas the rest of the country did it voluntarily. (laughs) By and large, (laughs) Taiwan, unlike right now, huge swathes of the U.S. is not saying to restaurants, you have to close. You know, they're not saying you can't have a wedding, but they're saying we would recommend that you not do the ceremonies right now, have the big parties right now. Yeah. Um, So the government has done a lot of this based on advisories and suggestions rather than orders. And most people have been doing a pretty good job, I think. And that's why Taiwan has such a, I think people have been taking it fairly seriously. And I'm looking at, you know, for example, you see all the news coming out of the U S where they're shutting everything except for non-essential stuff. Taiwan's not shut down like that. Right. But people are vigilant and they're careful. Yeah. And I think that they've, they've, they've really, They've taken the right tone, the right balance. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the Tsai administration, Tsai England herself is not the kind of person who's going to do something really radical, like declare a national emergency. Right. That's, but I'm worried about whoever follows her exactly. with this package of laws, especially if this virus becomes seasonal and we have to face this every year at this time. Yeah. And until they've got a vaccine, which they're saying would be a year to a year and a half at best yeah. from now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I worry about, I, you know, I, I understand why they, they tracked my cell phone and, you know, why they have these things in place. But I do have some deep concerns about will it be revived for a much less serious situation? Yes, exactly. And a lot of people have raised this issue and there's privacy issues and, uh, and there's all these complicated issues about searches, police entering your apartment, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh. Even police sweeping you off the street and shoving you back into quarantine. You know, there's, mm. there's, there's some legal issues that, that people on the, that people are talking about. And uh, a lot of people are very frightened by the government having this much power over their lives. Yeah. And I, you can't I, you blame know, them. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I, I mean, I, I understand why it's in place now. The real, I'm really deeply concerned though, because once, once police and prosecutors have this sort of power, they're going to want to keep that. Oh, they never hand that stuff back. 
if they can if they can possibly avoid handing it back. And yeah. often they'll twist laws. Like for example, in the United States, the RICO laws were put in place as a way that prosecutors uh, and police could take away ill-gotten gains from gangsters. Right. So they couldn't use that money for their own legal defense, which right. is iffy to begin with. That's yes. <laughs> but now <laughs> but, the the Rico they'll often use the Rico laws for against people who aren't gangs. Right. That are not ma- the mafia. It was originally intended specifically for the mafia. And you know, it's it's it, it, they it's kind of gotten out of control. Yeah. So I can, you can easily see how that could go here. So many, Mm. it's very scary. Well, we've been at this now for almost 40 minutes. I think we should wrap this up. All right. All right. Thanks for listening today, folks. All right. And uh, look forward to us next week. We should be back at our normal time. Uh, A quick announcement. It looks like the website will be back up right around April 1st. But maybe not, because that's April Fool's Day. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Look forward to next week. See you around. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw.